us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I just want to welcome you all here, especially if you are coming back. Maybe you're here for the first time. You have been here for a while. We're just uh, glad that you're worshiping with us. And if you're online, we're appreciative of your joining us online as well. It's just even after uh, doing this since March, it's still a little bit unusual to even think about the fact that we are still having online and that sort of stuff. But gradually, people are feeling more and more comfortable to come back. And we appreciate that. I just want to remind you to care about other people. So after the service, if you would do your best to make your way outside, it's a beautiful day, stand under the canopy or whatever, and uh, socialize all you want, that's great. Just uh, try to be cautious and careful of other people as you would do that, which you appreciate it. Also, if you happen to be here and you're, you're here for the, this is your first time, or maybe you're just a, a newcomer, if you would, wouldn't mind, stopping by the guest table after the service we'd sure like a chance to get to know you it's been kind of awkward and hard uh, during these past several months to actually make contact with new people because we can't make contact with regular people so it's just uh, difficult so we're just glad that you're worshiping with us one announcement that I have for sure and that is that next Sunday night we're having an outdoor evening service so we're having an outdoor evening service here at uh, Creekside 6.45 to 7.45 next Sunday night. So we want to make sure that you are welcome and aware of that and hope you can come and join us for that. Some people, we have some people even yet joining us online that still, you know, they would feel more comfortable uh, meeting outside. So we're going to do that and we're grateful for that opportunity. I don't have anything uh, major as far as other announcements. I just would ask you to be praying for our Awana kids and our Awana leaders and our all of the programming for this fall is still kind of we're trying to figure this all out and and making some decisions so we just need wisdom and we need grace and we need encouragement for one another I just can't remind you enough you know these are difficult days I just read this morning in Romans 14 uh, about doing what brings peace and the building up of one another I don't know about you but in this age it's awful easy to get cynical Awful easy to be critical, often easy to be ticked off about something just because you didn't like the way it happened. You know, that's not God's way. Uh, that's not God's people. Uh, God's called us to love and patience and grace and mercy. So let's really make a conscious effort of trying to practice what God's word calls us to patience with other people that don't see things the way we do, encouragement of other people not jumping to conclusions and judging people because they did something or didn't do something that somehow we're automatically taking the negative perspective. Uh, that's not God's way. Uh, if you're in Sunday school, young people, you are dismissed. Forgot to say that, but uh, we didn't forget it too late. So you are make your way out, and uh, you'll be brought back in at the end of the service. So that's good. Just make your way out to the back, and the teachers will take you. Those are the announcements. I'm going to ask you to.
pray with me. I don't know why, but uh, this morning's just been kind of a, a crazy um, in my mind and just a little bit more than usual, and I, I need uh, to quiet my heart, and I would ask you to pray with me as we prepare to study God's Word this morning. Father, you are a great and awesome God, and uh, we come this morning with the privilege of praising you. We are so grateful for the gathering of the body of believers, some uh, still with us online, and that's great. We're just grateful for each and every one, and we pray that you would continue to wash over our hearts and souls with the truths that come from your word, that they might transform us, that they might conform us to the image of Christ, and we pray that you would give us a greater reverence for the truth of your word and a greater reliance upon you and a greater consistency in our living out what you've called us to. Father, uh, we commit these next few moments of worshiping you through the study of your word and pray that they would be used for your glory. We pray that they'd be used for the advancement of your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, it doesn't take long if you take uh, just a quick glance at social media to find out who is all in for a particular presidential candidate. It doesn't take you very long to find out who's all in for a particular sports team. Several years ago, Marla and I were overseas during the Super Bowl, and we were shocked, I was shocked, and maybe Marla wasn't, but I was totally shocked to see all of the Green Bay Packer fans overseas wearing their cheese heads and wearing their uh, Green Bay Packer uniforms and, and things like that. It's like it's a total shock. It's not hard to find out who's all in for a sports team, not hard to find out who all, who's all in for a candidate. But I wonder this morning as we look at this passage in Matthew, how, how do we decide who's all in for Jesus? I think that's at least in large part what this text addresses. Who's all in for the Lord? You see, as Matthew marches us through this grand theme of Jesus, the King of Israel, Lord of the nations, as we come to Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 17, we, we have to look back in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Jesus uh, was shown to be the one who had authority. And in chapters 8 through 10, it's all about Jesus' authority. It's about establishing Jesus' authority, which is the basis for our allegiance, but also it's the basis of our allegiance because it's a confirmation of his identity. And so in 1 through 17 of Matthew chapter 8, uh, Jesus' authority is established. He has authority over disease. He has authority over disability. He has authority over demons. And after that series of miracles that establish his authority and his identity, then he calls some people to discipleship. And we see that the reluctance of their faith, their absence of their faith, meant that they were unwilling to pay the price to be all in for Jesus. Then on the heels of that, after three more miracles that established his identity and authority in chapter 8, beginning of verse 23 through chapter 9, verse 8, where we saw Jesus' authority over the storms. 
We saw Jesus' authority over Satan, casting out the demon. We saw Jesus' authority over sin. He alone was willing to forgive sins. Then we come to this passage now in chapter 9, verses 9 through 17, and the section says, what does it mean to follow Jesus? You see the miracles, you see the proof, and you are called to allegiance. We see the miracles, we see the proof, we're called to allegiance. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 17, we see one positive response and a couple of negative responses that give us a picture of, as Jesus responds to them, of what it means to be all in for Jesus. His interactions with others in this text give us three hallmarks of what it is to be a follower of Christ, what it is to be a child of the King, what it is to walk with Christ and to be all in for Him. I'm in Matthew chapter 9. I invite you to turn there, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 17 as we prepare to unpack this passage. In Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 9, and Jesus passed on from there. From where? If you remember last week, Kyle marched us through verses 1 through 8. He was in a home. Well, He was in the home surrounded by people, so many people that the people who brought the paralytic had to drop him through the roof. He passed on from there, the text says. And he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it happened that as he was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax gatherers and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the worst tear results. And Nor do men put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. As Jesus moves on, there's these interactions, and in each of these interactions, we see yet another reason, what it means for us. We demonstrate, he demonstrates for us that being all in for Jesus is something that happens when, first of all, we have a commitment to rely on Him. It's through our commitment to rely on Him. And we're given two parts to the interaction. It's with Matthew. Jesus asks him something, then Matthew responds. So first of all, we see Jesus' command. Jesus, it says in verse 9, has passed on from there, from this house where he was closed in by all of these people, so many, much so that it was impossible for anybody else to get in. And he moves to the outskirts of Capernaum where he was meeting people. And as he moved to the outskirts of Capernaum, he saw Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. 
And there he saw Matthew. Now, what we need to know about Matthew, if you looked at the parallel passages in, in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5, is that he's also called Levi. Okay? So he was, a, he was a tax gatherer, doubly despised by the Jews. Doubly. Why? First of all, because he was a tax gatherer. He was a loyal servant of Rome. Okay? And he had unrestricted ability to tax them, the, the Jewish people. And he had the full authority of the military behind him to collect the taxes. Now, these tax collectors were scoundrels because they were notorious for charging way more than what Rome required and pocketing the difference. And so he was very much despised. They were viewed as vile, corrupt, and very greedy. And most of them were vile, corrupt, and very greedy. We have two guys in our church that work for the IRS. I didn't ask them personally, but well, I kind of have joked around with uh, one or one of them, but uh, Mark Rubb and Troy Brockman. Now, I would imagine that if you were to ask either of them, hey, when you tell people you work for the IRS, are they really like excited about that? They really think that's a great thing? People, most people in the United States have a really good feeling about somebody who works for the IRS, especially agents of the IRS. They're like, yeah, welcome in. I was really so good to know you. Not. It's not true. Matthew was an IRS agent. Although he was even worse than that because he was seen as a traitor, not only to Jewish people, but because of his association, his allegiance to Rome, his association with Gentiles, and his abhorrent activity of overcharging, he couldn't even go into the synagogue. He couldn't worship. And none of the Jewish people, Israelites, wanted to associate with him. So that's the second way in which he was despised. He was outcast. He was ostracized. He was offensive. He was a traitor to the people. Some of you will not remember this, but you can look it up. In 2009, I believe it was Nadal Hassan, who was a lieutenant or a major, I can't remember which one exactly, at Fort Hood, shot 13 of his fellow soldiers, killing 13, I should say, and wounded 33 others. Despised, a traitor to his fellow soldiers, a traitor to, to America. Matthew was seen this way. And yet Jesus, in the text, Jesus invites this adversary into his family. He says, you, the fiend, I want you to be my friend. Jesus' command, and then you see Matthew's compliance. It says in verse 9, at the end of the second part of the verse, and he said, follow me. That was his command, follow me. And he did. <laughs> he followed him. He arose and followed him. No hesitation, no questions, no excuses, no debating. He just got up and went with Jesus. He followed Jesus. Now, how different, how unlike those who declared their allegiance to Jesus back in Matthew chapter 8 verses 19 and 21, but didn't demonstrate it by actually following him. Well, I got, a, you know, I got a dad to bury here, you know, and I got some other things I need to take care of here, so maybe I should do that first. Oh, okay. Now we see where your heart is. But this guy got up. 
Matthew followed, and in following Jesus, he found forgiveness. He found new life in a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. To follow means to repent. It means to turn from my my self-directed sinful life 180 degrees and to surrender and follow Christ. Wherever he might lead. Whatever he might, when this is what Jesus said. He came to this earth in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his message. See, the goal of, of, of repentance is the forgiveness of sins. Why don't you look at Acts chapter 3, verse 19. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Therefore repent and return. Why? So that your sins may be wiped away. The repentance leads to forgiveness. In order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He followed by turning from himself and surrendering to Christ. And Jesus' mission, as we learned last week, is primarily about forgiveness. Right? First thing he said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Wait a second, where did that come from? I thought he was supposed to, you're you're sick. You're, you're disabled. Heal the guy, right? No, your sins are forgiven. That's Jesus' main mission. It's to save his people. We saw it back in chapter 1, verse 21. He came to, his name is Jesus, for he will save his people from their paralysis. From their psychoanalysis. From their disabilities. No, from their sins. That's why Jesus came. To save people from their sins, from the penalty of sin, which is death, from the power of sin, which is controlling us to live in contrast to God, and from, ultimately, the presence of sin in glory. That's why he came. But to follow him means, first of all, that we must understand that we're sinful. That all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That we're headed in a path that's contrary to God. And that the greatest need of our soul is not satisfaction of our physical needs. The greatest need of our soul is not that we have a better income. Or that we have a higher standard of living. Or that we have better health. But that we have a right relationship with God. And when we admit we're sinful then we must also understand that that sin brings about destruction, God's condemnation, the wage of sin, the payment for what we we get for what we do by sinning is death and separation from Him. But Christ died. Jesus, follow me. Because I'm the one who died in your place. I paid the debt that you deserve to pay because I died on the cross for you. And that we must trust, put our trust, our faith in what Jesus did. For by grace we've been saved through faith. And that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works so no one can boast. Follow me, he says to Matthew. Follow me is what he says to each of us. And Luke chapter 5 verse 28, the parallel passage says this. It says that he left everything behind and rose and followed He left his post. He left his position. He left his possessions. He left his power so that he could be pardoned. Because being pardoned was of vastly greater value than anything that he left behind. 
He traded his influence and his affluence for an eternal inheritance. He traded his temporal pleasures for heavenly treasure. The pardon and the peace and the purpose that comes from following Jesus is of so much greater value than any earthly portfolio. And Matthew turned and left. I have a friend. I'm going to call him Joe. And Joe was a member of a high-caste family in India. In fact, one of his family members was a, a... a priest, priestess in the Hindu religion. And he left it all to follow Jesus. Couldn't even return to his home for fear of his life from his own family members because he listened and repented and followed Christ. Follow me. When Jesus says, follow me, and this is the thing that I want to say to each of us, listening online and here this morning is when Christ gives the call, it's not some feel-good thing. It is a surrender of our lives to Him. Follow me. And it is an initial surrender, absolute surrender in salvation, but it is a daily sacrifice as we've talked about before in Matthew chapter 16, which we'll get to eventually, hopefully, Lord willing, if he doesn't come before that time. And Jesus says this, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, uh, translate follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me every day, every day, every day. My friend Dave Dave was not a, a popular guy in high school. He was kind of an awkward, uh, uh, you know, one of the, the class, uh, outcast kind of type people. But Dave came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And Dave grew up and had a passion to teach and preach and share the gospel with G- of Jesus with people. And he would, when he first started doing this, he actually would get physically sick. I mean, he'd have to visit the bathroom. Before he, uh, before he went and, and would talk in front of anyone about Christ. But I tell you, he is one of the most humble and godly and gifted teachers that I know. Because he's absolutely surrendered to what Jesus wants to do in his life. He does what God calls him to, not what he prefers. He's committed to it. I ask you this morning, have you followed Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ and his death alone as the payment for your sin and surrendered your life to him? And if that's not true, I just want to challenge you to do it today. And you can. You just say, Lord, okay, I get it. I've been playing games with you. Now it's time to turn over my life to you. I trust what Jesus did on the cross as the payment for my sin. And if you have, the question I have for those of us who have trusted Christ is are we living daily in surrender to him? Is, is, is this submission to Christ translating into my forgiveness towards those who are my enemies or to the offender? Is it leading me to witness to my neighbors? Is it causing me to be more generous with my possessions? Is it encouraging me to serve more faithfully those who need me? Am I becoming more loving and gentle and kind? See, 
Jesus says, follow me. It is demonstrated that we're all in for Jesus through our commitment to rely on him for salvation and for our lives. And secondly, it's through our compassion for the rebellious. Luke chapter 5 verse 29, which is a parallel passage to this, tells us that this meal that took place, if you look at verses 10 through 13, it says, and it happened that as he was reclining at the table, where? He was in Matthew's home, probably. That's what Luke 5 tells you, in Matthew's home. And they were having a celebration for him because it says he was reclining at the table. This is a formal celebration. You think, it's kind of weird for me, but I, I'm, I'm not a Near Eastern person. We think about a formal meal. When you have a formal meal, you have a sit-down-at-the-table meal, right? No, they didn't. They put the, the table about this far off the ground, and they all laid around on pillows. You know? They're reclining at the table, a formal meal that probably Matthew put on in honor of Jesus. And who did he invite? Well, his friends. You know? And who were his friends? <laughs> yeah, the scumbags, the, the, the tax gatherers, and the sinners. These are the people that Matthew knew. These were his friends, so he invited them to the party. And Jesus' example is absolutely instructive in two ways. First of all, he chose to hang out with these rebels. That's a remarkable thing that Jesus chose them to hang out with. So tax gatherers, we already know, they're the enemies of the Pharisees, okay? The enemies of any good, upstanding religious person, you know? And the, the sinners refers to the notoriously evil people. These were the murderers, the embezzlers, the extortionists, the adulterers, the thieves. These are bad people, you know. These are the people who didn't give a rip about the Mosaic Law. They could care less about rabbinic teaching. They didn't care one iota about Pharisaic tradition. Don't give us that religious stuff. We're just here for a good party. Now, any good Pharisee, any good religious person would have nothing to do with an association with this corrupt group of scoundrels. And hanging out with that congregation of people, no way. They wouldn't. So what did they do? Well, piously, self-righteously, in order to validate their own self-righteousness, they asked Jesus' disciples a condescending question. And, you know, here's what they said. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said, why is your teacher hanging out with these tax gatherers and sinners? Well, it's really not a question. It's an accusation, right? A condemnation of those convinced of their superior spirituality. You know, they can look down their nose with disdain at Jesus. The question I have for you, remember back in chapter 5? When Jesus says that, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That's chapter 5, verse 20. How is it that hanging out with the rebels displays a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? That's the question we're going to answer. I'm not going to answer it yet, but we're going to get there, okay? But that's the question. See, Jesus hanging out with these people is exactly why... He was condemned in the way he was, and we'll look at it in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19. If you look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, it says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, but they said, Behold, he's a glutton, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, and a friend of tax gatherers and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. He was looked down upon for doing this. I asked you this morning, are there any untouchables 
that you hang out with? Any of those people that, you know, good religious people, you know, they, they kind of think, well, you know, wouldn't be caught, you know. I don't want anybody Instagramming me or, you know, Snapchatting while I'm hanging out with these people. Several years ago, Marla and I, that's my wife, for those who don't know that, my wife, we, we accepted an invitation to a birthday party at a bar in a small town where showing up made everybody really feel awkward. I was one of three pastors in the town, right? And I showed up at the local tavern on a Saturday night when everybody was in there having a good time. Because Mike was having a birthday. And Mike was the local town bum. And I and another guy in the church had been praying for Mike. And we had been talking to Mike and sharing the gospel with Mike and challenging Mike that he needed to turn from his sins and trust Christ. And we felt convinced that if Jesus was there, he would want us to go to Mike's birthday party. And I won't even begin to tell you how they had Mike's cake decorated. I won't tell you what it was like when we walked in. We didn't stay long. But the reason why hanging out with the rebels is an exhibition of a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees is because of why we do it. Which is what Jesus shows us in the next text. He chose to heal the rebellious. He hung out with them because he wanted to heal them. In verses 12 to 13, we find the most definitive, most concise, and the most conclusive statement of his primary mission. Read with me verses 12 and 13. But when he heard this, when he heard them ask the question of his disciples why he's hanging out with these scumbags, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. You see, Jesus communicated his primary mission with three tactics. First of all, here's what he did. He communicated the fact that he was interested and had compassion on the rebellious. He was concerned about repentance and he was committed to forgiveness. And he does so with three, in three ways. Here's how he does it. First of all, there's a simple illustration. Verse, it, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician. Right? That's why I'm hanging out with these people because they're not healthy. In fact, they don't think they're healthy, you think you're healthy, Pharisees. You think you're self-righteous, that you have your act together. But the Pharisees, they viewed themselves as healthy. But the tax gatherers, they, they probably had, a, and the sinners, they had a good understanding that they were not healthy, and the Pharisees told them they weren't healthy. Right? Isn't it interesting that those who are sick generally have a better understanding that they're sick? If they think they're righteous, no, not so much. But if they realize that, you know, because of, and I think that God oftentimes uses 
brokenness in, in the lives of the people who are living in rebellion. He uses their disappointment. He uses their discouragement. He uses diseases. He uses deformity. He uses disappointment and struggles, depression, to bring them to a point of realizing that they need something they don't have. They're not playing games. I mean, they weren't pretending to be religious, right? But the Pharisees were pretending to be religious. Their greatest need was what Jesus could provide. He could provide the healing balm for their deepest need, and that was the forgiveness of their sins. So those are the people to whom he went. So there was that simple illustration. Now there's a stinging exhortation. (laughs) End of verse 12. Jesus says, uh, those are sec- verse 13, but go and learn, okay? That's a command, but it's a, a targeted command. Who's it targeted to? It's targeted to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. His rebuke was a suggestion of their ignorance of and their disobedience to what they should have been completely competent in, the Scripture. <laughs> you imagine, okay, go and learn. You're, you're the teacher, you're the prof, I could pick on Doug Elric if I wanted to, you're, you're, you're the, the doctor of forensics, uh, computer science. Now, go and learn what it means to turn on your computer. Can you open windows? Jesus says to them, go and learn. Most of you don't know who Greg Kukul is, but he has written a book called Tactics, uh, which is a kind of an apologetic kind of a tool for people to use in uh, the defense of their faith. But Greg Kukul was in a debate with, and I have to, Gary Willis. I don't know who Gary Willis is, but he's a Pulitzer Prize winning historian. And in the debate, this Gary Willis said to Greg Kukul, he says, the, the founding fathers were not Christians, they were deists. Okay. So Greg Kukul, who is responding to the historian, Pulitzer Prize winning historian, says this. He says, the founding fathers is kind of a proper noun, which it it refers predominantly to those who were most critical in the founding documents, particularly those who were at the Constitutional Convention. And at the Constitutional Convention, of the 55 men at the Constitutional Convention, 28 were Episcopalians, 8 were Presbyterians, 7 he says, were Congregationalists. There were two Lutherans, two Dutch Reformed, two Methodists, and two Roman Catholics. There was one who was an other, and then there were three Deists. So 51 of the 55 were absolutely Christian by their own profession, and that's 93%. What do you do? Go and learn. You're the master historian, but you don't know history. Jesus says to the teachers of the law, you are teachers of the law. You don't know diddly squat about what the scripture teaches with regard to people. And so what does he do? (laughs) Jesus gives him a lesson. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, in which the prophet is speaking for God, calling those who are the rebels in Israel, condemning their outturned external conformity that was devoid of internal reality. Saying, essentially to the Pharisees, what I desire from you is what I desired from the children of Israel a long time ago, is that we would be 
people who weren't caught up in ritual observance, but in righteousness of the kingdom, in real relationship with God. Because, folks, it's not religious pretense, but they needed to embrace the righteousness of the kingdom. Because only as those who have received mercy will we be able to extend mercy. And the Pharisees hadn't received it yet because they didn't know that they were sinful. They didn't know that God's desire was for them to experience His mercy and not to just offer up these these vain sacrifices. And here, mercy experienced. And if you're here this morning and you have experienced the mercy of God, the mercy that's been experienced by rebels who have repented and been forgiven is a mercy we want to extend to others. It's what Jesus came to do. Remember? Remember last week? Your sins are forgiven. That's what Jesus came to do. And it's what he calls us to. It's to forgive. And the third way that Jesus puts them in their place and shows us that compassion for the rebellious is his heart for his disciples is with a straightforward explanation. In verse 13, the end of the verse, he says, I did not come to call the righteous but the sinners to repentance. To repentance is not in Matthew chapter 5, but it is in Mark chapter uh, it's not in Matthew chapter 8, I'm sorry, but 9, but it is in Mark, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 32, he adds, call you to repentance. Jesus' mission is not to the self-righteous. His mission is not to those who, through their arrogance, see no need for repentance and therefore cannot experience forgiveness, but his call is to those who are alert to their sinfulness. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 Peter says that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says at the end of the verse, verse 6, he says, behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. So I say to you online here this morning, are you one of the rebels to whom Jesus is extending mercy? Are you resisting? Have you ever surrendered your life to Christ and what he did on the cross is the payment for your sins so that you can have received this mercy. That's what Jesus came to do. His disciples bring it. That's why I'm sharing it. I have experienced his mercy. And now all I'm doing is sharing with you what God has done for me and that is the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Now is the day of salvation. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that is our mission. The mission of the church is not social justice. The mission of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus came for. Because if people get saved, the rest of it takes care of itself. Not that he doesn't care about those other things. It takes care of itself through the work. I wonder... Hanging out with any unsociables? Hanging out with any of the untouchables? Maybe you have some in your family. Maybe you have some in your neighborhood. Maybe at your workplace. Maybe at school. I don't know where they are for you. I, sometimes, you know, I heard someone say once time, after a person becomes a Christian, it takes, after two years of being a Christian, they don't have any unsafe friends. Not good. Not good. We need to find them. 
Because they need Jesus. Just write it down. Pray. Colossians 4, 2 through 6 for yourself. That God would open a door for the word that you might proclaim the gospel for which Paul had been put in prison that, prison, that you might proclaim it in a way that you ought to proclaim it. That I would proclaim it. There is this commitment to rely upon Jesus. There is this compassion for the rebellious. And finally we see in Jesus his commitment to discipleship and disciples who are all in for Jesus. There is our concern for being righteous. In verses 14 through 17, uh, it's amazing because the, the Pharisees had just railed on Jesus, disciples, and now the disciples of John come to Jesus and ask him about his disciples, and evidently the, the Pharisees and the disciples of John had something in common. They must have both believed that there were certain uh, adherence to certain acceptable religious practices of piety were the, what defines you as to whether you were loyal to God. Because they asked him about fasting. Now, he said the Pharisees, they said, if you read in verse 14. Now, why is it that the Pharisees fast and that we fast? So, basically, if you hang out with wicked people and you don't fast, you aren't spiritual. That was their insinuation. And Jesus employed three metaphors in his response. First was a wedding, Okay. And, I mean, it's pretty common sense. If you read verse 15, it's just like, hey, if you went to a wedding, if the groomsmen are at the wedding, should the groomsmen be fasting during the wedding? I mean, the last wedding I went to, every wedding I've been to is a celebration, right? You have food and you have fun. When the bridegroom is present, feasting, not fasting, is the order of the day. And Jesus is the bridegroom. You read it if you want to, in John chapter 3, verse 29. But when the bridegroom is taken away, then it's time for fasting. At the crucifixion, when Christ is gone, okay, now there's time for fasting. There's time for mourning. There's time for seeking God's face. There's time for being serious uh, with God and, and seeking His face to, to do things that we haven't done before. And that John's disciples put this inappropriate emphasis on ritual rather than the righteousness of the kingdom is seen in the final two metaphors that he uses. Some of the most confusing verses, two of the most confusing verses in all the scriptures that I know of. Because you, you read this and you go, we're in a world, I mean, a, a, a fresh piece of cloth put on a, an old garment and then it rips and then you got a new wineskin and an old wineskin you don't put the new wine and the old wineskin and most of us don't even know what a wineskin is and most people that are under the age of 40 don't even know what it is to sew anything onto anything so what is he talking about you see both of those metaphors the New cloth on the old, you know, you got some old ratty, thin jeans. This is my side comment. Now we buy them that way. But mine wore out that way, okay? And then we would patch the knee, see? You'd sew it. But if there's no good, solid cloth to stitch it to, it's going to rip out, okay? And then the wine in the wineskin, the old wineskin would be uh, brittle and it's, it's made out of leather, you know, so it would be from use, it would be brittle. If you put new wine in, it's going to ferment and it's going to expand, it's going to rip. Those are illustrations of the incompatibility, the incompatibility of the old ways 
Not the, not the law of God, but the Pharisaic traditions which had, which had replaced the law of God, which had circumvented, which had become contrary to the law of God. Those old systematic ways of, hey, you shouldn't hang out with pagans, and uh, you have to fast now instead of waiting until Jesus leaves. Those old ways were detrimental. They're contrary to the kingdom righteousness that Jesus was introducing. Contrary to the new way, the, the new cloth, and the new wineskin of repentance and forgiveness and heartfelt obedience to the Word of God. Jesus' intention was to reform that kind of garbage and replace it with the righteousness of the kingdom. To be all in for Jesus. To be all in for Jesus means that in our mindset, we're, our actions reflect an attitude of repentance. And reliance upon God. And a commitment to love Him and serve Him and follow Him fully. We, we read the Bible. And we pray. And we study. And we come and we listen to sermons. And we serve and we give and we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not because it's a sacrifice that we think was going to earn us points with God. But because of our love for what God has done for us in Jesus. And we hang out with unsaved people because we care that they're headed for an eternity apart from God unless they hear the message of salvation through faith in Jesus. Not because we want to contaminate ourselves. No, but we want to see them come to know Jesus. I remember sitting in a, a tire shop when I was, first got started in ministry and had to get some new tires and I'm sitting in the tire shop and I mean I was like I didn't know what I was doing and I was reading my Bible getting ready for Sunday morning you know reading my Bible in the shop and some guy noticed I was reading my Bible which is interesting if you, you, you get that if you read your Bible in public people kind of take notice sometimes and the, he said oh yeah you're, I see you're reading the Bible I said, I said yeah I'm reading the Bible so what version are you reading? Well, I was reading the wrong one, okay? And he made it very clear that I was reading the wrong one. And I thought, get a life. I'm reading God's Word. Now, there are some way better than others, but the one I was reading, uh, actually, you know, he didn't like it when I told him the one he was reading had some stuff that had embellished, been embellished uh, later, uh, you know, uh, but uh, uh, we can get into that later. But anyhow, the point is this. He was into the ritual observance. See, God doesn't want us into ritual observance in order to gain public acceptance. He wants us into righteousness of the kingdom. And so he says, don't worry about the fact that my disciples are not fasting. Because that looked bad on Jesus too, you know. Because the disciple is known, you know, a teacher is known by his disciples, right? Jesus says, get over it. If you're here this morning and, and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I think this text should be an encouragement to you. Because look at Jesus hung out with you. Right? We have this misconception, at least people who don't know Christ have this misconception, I had to get my life together in order to, to get close to God. Guess what? No, you can't get close to God unless He hangs out with you. And that's exactly what He did when He sent His Son Jesus to this earth. He hung out with us. And the same God who sent Jesus, who is here and who's died and risen and at the right hand of the Father, He wants to hang out with us today. 
He came in the person to give us forgiveness of our sins and the promise of new life. If we would turn from our sins, repent, and trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior. And that's what he wants for you if you don't know Christ today. And he showed his love for you. And that's what we as believers should show to other people who don't know Jesus. Or if we don't know they know Jesus, because that's what God has called us to do. He issues the same invitation. And I challenge you to take that step to be all in for Jesus. And to trust him as your Savior. And if you're here this morning listening or in person and you know Christ is your Savior, then guess what? To be all in for Jesus is you've committed your life to Christ. Now it's just to be all in every day, (laughs) which that's, that's hard to do, right? Each day, Lord, this is the day. Yes, Master, it's your day. Whatever you want, bring it my way. Teach me to surrender. I don't know about you, you ever, you ever have this idea about your day and, and things start going haywire and they're like, rats, what's going on? So God's no longer in control, right? Well, he is, but I don't want him to be. Surrender our life. Believers, it means saying yes. It's compassion for the lost. It's a commitment to rely upon him. It's compassion for the lost. And it is a concern for righteousness of the kingdom, not ritual observance. And how fitting that they're they're dining and sharing a meal together. And why is it that Jesus is sharing the meal with these untouchable people? So that one day they will share a meal with him in glory with his father. And as we share a meal, break bread, and take the cup as a remembrance of what Christ has done for us, the bread is a symbol of his body broken and the blood remembered through this grape juice that we take. Isn't it marvelous that we, we remember, we are mindful of the mercy that he has extended to us that should move us, I think, as believers to say, yeah, I'm committed. I'm all in. That should encourage us to have compassion and should motivate us to be concerned for righteousness. And so, if you would commit your life to Christ right now, I would invite you to take the bread and the cup as a a symbol of your commitment to be all in for Jesus. And if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I would challenge you to just reflect upon this moment. Take some time. Everyone who knows Christ is invited to partake. Confess your sins and kind of re-up, you know, just kind of say, yeah, Lord, what you did for me calls for the greatest of my commitment to you, and I'm all in for you. Let's pray. Father, as, uh, as we take this peel back the top layer of that little cup that's uh, in front of us or if we're at home take the the bread and as we drink uh, the the juice under that second layer or flap in our little cups here in church or at home I pray that as we break this bread and drink this cup that you would be honored and glorified and that you'd help us to examine our hearts that we might be totally all in for Christ in whose name we pray amen